Red food number one, red lentils. These don't get a lot of press. I mean, when's the last time you saw a headline about red lentils? But they should because they're a legume and they are high in fiber. That's good for not just keeping you regular, but also helping lower cholesterol, right? Because beans in particular, along with oats, are high in soluble fiber that acts like a sponge and soaks up the excess cholesterol. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Today's show is devoted to getting you some answers. Doctors Neil Barnard and Vanita Ramon, they will be here to open up the doctor's mailbag. And we have a ton of great questions this week again. And I've said it before, and I will say it again as well. In the famed words of Yogi, the exam room listeners, you are smarter than the average bear. (laughs) So we've got a ton of great questions, like one from Dynam, who wanted to know whether super tasters are real people. Is this really a thing? These are people who supposedly have overly sensitive taste buds to the point where they can't stand the taste of some vegetables. And then there is another question from a listener who wanted to get a doctor's opinion on the salt that is added to substitute meats. You know, you see them a lot in the frozen food section. So what's the verdict on those? And Mason was wondering about soybeans and whether it's possible to overdo it with them since they are relatively high in fat. So some great questions there, plus a ton of others, and we're going to be getting you some answers here in just a little bit. But we're going to start today from the heart. For years, heart disease has been the number one killer in the U.S., And now it has become one of the leading comorbidities that we're seeing with COVID-19 patients. In fact, in New York, cardiovascular ailments overall, they account for three of the top 10 underlying conditions in COVID-related deaths. And while, no, we cannot say what the effect nutrition has on the coronavirus yet. We can't say that because everything is so new. But we can say with a great deal of certainty that nutrition does play an enormous role in preventing and even reversing heart disease. Experts on this very show have hypothesized that the number of deaths related to heart disease could be cut by half, if not more. And without heart disease, the odds of surviving COVID-19 do in fact increase. So that is as far as we can connect the dots for now. But this is certainly worth taking a deeper examination. And so today, dietitian Lee Crosby will be here to talk about the best foods that you should be eating to jumpstart your heart. Indeed, the Fiber Queen is here to talk about heart health. And to take it a step further... Since we are talking about the heart after all, we're going to be talking about red foods specifically. We're going to be talking about the red foods that can help keep you pumping in fine fashion. So you ready? Let's get pumped up right now. Talk about heart healthy red foods right here on the exam room. 
Lee, this all seems to go together so very well, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And the nice thing here is, again, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If it's good for the heart, it's probably good for COVID and for diabetes and, and, and. So, yeah, it's it's win-win all around. I'm, and and so let's talk about, we talked so much about dark colored foods and, and the health benefits that come from them. Red foods, certainly no exception. Absolutely not. Yeah, they have a lot of different health benefits. Again, anything that's deeply colored, as you mentioned, is going to be Good for you. The exception here would be red meat. We might just pass on that. But otherwise, yeah. We're, and the reason this is so important, again, not just in terms of overall health, but in terms of COVID-19, is we really need to keep our heart and blood vessels healthy in case we do get the disease. Um, and again, this is actually an analogy. I had first brought out, I think, maybe the very first Facebook Live episode that we did. But just to sort of bring it back to life to really show people why this is important. Think of your arteries like highways and your red blood cells, those cells that carry oxygen to the body, that those are like little trucks, right? And your lungs are the supply depot where they fill up. Now, if everything is going great and you're healthy and it's normal, the supply depot is functioning and the highways are open, those trucks get through just fine. Your body gets all the oxygen it needs. But if you're eating the standard American sad diet and you're not taking care of the highways, we need a little bit of, you know, the potholes are starting to get like axle breakers and some of the lanes are closed. You can still get by if everything's okay, but man, if a tornado hits that supply depot and you can't load up your trucks like usual and you're getting half loaded trucks out on these highways with lane closures when things, you know, there's branches down everywhere, that's a big problem. And that's just like having COVID hit your lungs is having a tornado hit the supply depot. So, you know, if there's, if you're the red blood cells or those trucks are trying to get through blood vessels that are just all blocked up, you've got big trouble. And that includes for trying to get oxygen to the heart itself, because what feeds the heart are blood vessels. And if those blood vessels have blockages already, when you start adding in the extra stress of a heart that's trying to pump extra, because heart rate increases with fever, for instance, you've got you've got major trouble. But luckily, these red foods can help us with the rest of our whole food plant based diet open and repair those vessels. And I do want to make one more point, Chuck, that sort of circles back to what you were mentioning, is we don't just need to have a healthy heart to survive COVID. We need a healthy heart to survive, period. So I looked these stats up. According to the CDC, last year, 647,000 Americans, or they, um, 647,000 Americans die each year from heart disease. So again, we've had 80,000 COVID deaths, and that is horrible and tragic, but so is the number of people that we lose from heart disease when a lot of those deaths were probably could have been prevented and happened too early. So are you ready to talk some red foods? Well, yeah, and, and and I love this analogy that you used about potholes because around here, I mean, you know that <laughs> once winter comes, I mean, it's just oh, the the roads are just littered with them. I mean, it's just like you're dodging, you're ducking, you're weaving, just trying it's to keep your axles down. in check. But then, <laughs> yeah, right. So then, once the weather warms and things begin to thaw, we have something called pothole palooza, and that is where <laughs> they go in and they patch all kinds of potholes. I mean, Technical it's like term. a game. How many can you fill? in the span of a week. And so I look at these red foods that you're going to be talking about today as our own version of pothole palooza. I love yeah, it. That's right? going viral for sure. <laughs> All right. So what's on your list? Okay. So red food number one, red lentils. These don't get a lot of press. I mean, when's the last time you saw a headline about red lentils, but they should. Okay. First, 
because they're a legume and they are high in fiber. I'm the fiber queen. Um, that's good for not just keeping you regular, but also helping lower cholesterol, right? Because beans in particular, along with oats, are high in soluble fiber, that kind of fiber that acts like a sponge and soaks up the excess cholesterol that's in your gastrointestinal tract. Now, even if you're eating a plant-based diet and you're not eating extra exogenous or outside cholesterol, your body is still making its own and the waste cholesterol it tries to get rid of by putting it back into your gastrointestinal tract. And if you have fiber there, soluble fiber to soak it up and insoluble fiber to kind of scrub it out so it, it gets gone when you go to the bathroom, that's great. If you don't, you can actually end up reabsorbing your waste cholesterol, which can raise your cholesterol levels bad for your heart. The other important thing is that lentils, along with these other legumes, help replace red meat, which we know is dangerous for your heart. Cool fact, a cup of red lentils, 18 grams of protein, a cup cooked. And the nice thing is it's really awesome for thickening stews and chilies. They cook pretty fast relative to beans, so much faster. Um, and you can also use them to make something called dal. If you've never had that, it's an Indian comfort food dish and it's super healthy. It uses one of our next red foods, tomatoes. And if you want to try it out, there's a great dal recipe by it's a website called Vegan Richa, R-I-C-H-A. So veganricha.com. Look for her turmeric spinach lentil dal. And if you want, it only has a teaspoon of oil, but you can even get rid of that by dry toasting your spices. So that's red food number one. All right. Well, well. Now, hold on. Let's let's unpack red food number one. Two things here. One, yes. doll is absolutely delicious. It's I love so it. good, right? One of the one of the hardest parts of being at home all of the time now is not being able to go down the street to the Indian restaurant by the office and get the doll that they have. It Sometimes is you just need a buffet, and it's not happening right now. I know, right? But <laughs> two, uh, I love the fact that you included uh, the protein content with lentils because that continues to be a concern for people who are just beginning to explore a plant-based diet. You know, so many people now, we've seen these studies time and again since the pandemic began. People are exploring alternatives to meat and dairy. One of the people who I was reading about just yesterday was an Olympic gymnast by the name of Allie Reisman, and she stated oh. in this article in Women's Health that she She's struggling to get enough protein with her new plant-based diet. So I love the fact that you went 18 grams of protein right there with red lentils. Good job. Yeah. And none of the saturated fat and cholesterol that can not just harm heart health, but also performance. So just saying, if right she needs protein, hit up some lentils. <laughs> I think you said tomatoes were next on tomatoes. the list. Tomatoes. Okay. So they are good for all the reasons and we're getting ready. Tomato season. If you are a gardener, you know, you're getting ready to put out your tomato plants. It's, it's coming. Get ready. So they're high in lycopene. We all know that's a phytonutrient that is, it can actually potentially help lower the risk of heart attack, but it's also protective in terms of prostate, breast, and even skin cancer. That's a fun fact. Um, now, do we eat tomatoes raw or cooked? You'll see both thing, both ways being promoted. And I, my answer again to this is yes, as always, yes to raw and yes to cook. So raw, they're going to be higher in vitamin C, which there's some evidence that not just on the heart health side, but that if you aren't getting enough, that could potentially help you if you get a respiratory virus. And also the cooked on the flip side are higher in that absorbable uh, lycopene because it actually, the lycopene hangs out inside the cells of the tomato. So when you cook them, you burst them open and you can absorb the lycopene. And they're rich in potassium, which can help you lower blood pressure, which we know high blood pressure is not just bad for your heart. It's also bad if you catch COVID-19. No so, doubt. Tomatoes. You ready for How about another one? Uh, yeah, I, Bring it on. Yes. Okay. Beets. Speaking of athletic performance. Okay. Beets. Rich in beet 
betaine, betaine, I think of it that way, but betaine can help protect the heart by helping lower homocysteine levels. If you're an athlete, beets can also help you improve your endurance and muscle recovery by partly increasing blood flow to the muscles. Now you can roast beets. You can actually grate them and put them with some uh, Dijon mustard in a, in a raw salad, super tasty, just like your own little beet salad. And then Dr. Jim Loomis of Game Changers fame and also our medical director at the Barnard Medical Center has a Game-changing recipe for beet hummus. I don't know if it's anywhere online or if you can con, him out, con that out of him, but it's a really awesome recipe for beet hummus. I, I've not seen that. I know that the man is a whiz in the kitchen that we should definitely tap into that resource. I will say, you know, one of the things that I love most, I know that you're a big salad fan. I love good, like just cubed roasted beets. Just put those in the salad as well with a whole bunch of mixed greens. Oh, interesting. So good. It's so, so good. Full confession, I'm not a huge beet fan, but I would be willing to try roasted. I like them. And I'm telling you, if you haven't tried the raw shredded beets with the Dijon mustard and a salad, like a little kind of slaw almost kind of thing, it's surprisingly good. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's so many people like beets are one of those under the radar kind of vegetables <laughs> that I didn't even think about until I adopted a plant based diet. And then lo and behold, one day, a couple of years ago, I'm down in the Hampton, Virginia area visiting my mother in law, and she is anything but plant based. God love her. But we went to the salad bar. And I mean, she went to town on the beets that were at the salad bar. Fantastic. You know, and, I mean, she just spoonful after spoonful. It was like two pieces of lettuce and a ton of beets. Hey, that's cool. Whatever, whatever makes you happy. If it's a whole plant food, eat it. <laughs> oh, she was happy. What's next? All right. Next up, we have red grapes. I've talked about this before. They are always in my fridge. I love them because they're super versatile. They're anti-inflammatory. They've got fiber and they're nice and hydrating, high water content. Of course, they've got resveratrol. Good for heart health might potentially also be good in terms of helping to reduce the risk of a severe COVID outcome. Um, you all know I love them frozen. If you haven't read the blog post I did about a dietitian's day of food in quarantine, go read that because they make an appearance as my dessert frozen. They are like sorbet bites. So good. Um, also, they're a great salad topping. They're practically a salad dressing all by themselves because they've got a little bit of acid and a little bit of sweetness. So it kind of covers most of the bases there. So red grapes. You you do uh, salads in the morning. I know that you're a I breakfast do. salad fan. Huge. I think grapes in a breakfast salad would be fantastic. Had that this morning, actually. There you go. I think that your next food would also pair well with the grapes in a salad. It does. It also does very nicely with a baby spinach salad. And this is strawberries. We have mentioned them before, but they made the list because of a couple of reasons. One, again, loaded up with vitamin C intake. And we all know that antioxidant power is great. I'm sorry, loaded up with vitamin C, 141% of your daily value in a cup. So that's pretty great. Um, they're also, they also contain a nutrient called fecetin, right? And what is that? It is a bright red pigment in the strawberry that makes it so pretty, which we all love pretty food, but it also helps to protect um, your blood vessels. So that's kind of a nice little piece there. And it potentially has anti-cancer and anti-aging properties. So either way, also strawberries are just delicious. Let's get real. So again, they're great on a salad. They're good in a smoothie. They're good all by themselves. And if you get ones that aren't quite there, but you know, you get what you get at the grocery store these days. Um, if you do an equal mix of cocoa powder and uh, like an organic powdered sugar, it's not a super health food, but it's a really nice like chocolate covered strawberry dessert. Mm, and, yeah. you know, it, it, strawberries can be hit or miss, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it's just almost strawberry season, you know, it's so we're, we're going to get some yeah. really good strawberries in the store 
pretty soon. Get Yeah, brace yourself. It's going to be awesome. It is going to be epic. Uh, so what's the bottom line here with uh, red foods and heart health? Break it on down for us. Okay, so the red plant, obviously the red meat, push that aside. The red foods, again, and this is really all the whole plant foods, but these five in particular are sort of rock stars when it comes to heart health, is that you can help prevent heart disease. You can help reduce your risk. And again, this isn't just heart disease. It's also it's all the cardiovascular diseases. So basically, if you have a blood vessel that feeds it, which is every organ, these foods can help with all of those. And in some cases, they can even help reverse cardiovascular disease. So that's great news for you. And for those of you, heart. <laughs> I had to. Come on. I love so much when you're on this show. So I, cheesy. I just, it, 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 is, it, is, it is not an S. Plant-based cheesy. It <laughs> that's is, right. It's just phenomenal. Uh, but in all seriousness, like I love this so much. It's so important because you know, going back and pulling some data this morning in preparation of having you on the show, I was looking at the numbers in New York. They do a phenomenal job of just posting all of their COVID-related statistics. And really that top 10 of comorbidities, those underlying conditions with those deaths that they're experiencing up there, so many of them tie right back to the heart. So it's good to know that the first thing that you can do to start to boost your own heart health is to really start picking up some of these foods the next time you're in the store. Yeah, actually this morning I was also doing a little more research on it. And on May 1st, there was an article published in the journal of the American Medical Association, and it was more than twice the risk for people who went into the hospital with COVID-19. You had more than twice the risk of dying from it in the hospital if you had coronary artery disease. So that's basically disease in the vessels that feed your heart. So it really, it could not be a better time to make these kinds of changes than now. And the other good part of that is that we're home. We don't have as many temptations in our face all the time. So it's actually, if you want to try and find a silver lining, part of it is that, hey, we have time to focus on our habits and really make some changes that can stick once we get back to normal life. That interview originally aired on The Exam Room Live. It's kind of a new thing that we're doing around here. Every day, Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, myself and Dr. Neil Barnard and other experts, we're all getting together for what I call the healthiest half hour-ish on the internet today. And we would love to have you join us over on the Physicians Committee's YouTube and Facebook pages. For your convenience, we have posted a link to both in the episode notes. So mark your calendars, noon Eastern, Monday through Friday for the exam room live. But Lee, back to Lee, man, is she ever great? Have you checked out her blog? Did you know that she has one? Head over to VeggieQuest.com. Poke around because that is a heck of a resource. And might I add, has quite the tasty collection of recipes. Definitely will not disappoint. All right, let's switch gears now. It is time to open up the doctor's mailbag where we answer your health and nutrition questions. And we got some real talkers this week too. Dr. Barnard and Dr. Vanita Rahman, they will be here in just a second to bestow their wisdom with us. Going to be tackling questions like one from Andrea, whose total cholesterol is 149. And she wants to know why her doctor is telling her that that's too low. We're also going to be hearing about some COVID-19 related questions. Questions from Edith, who wants to know whether microwaving can kill the virus. And from Lindsay, who wanted to know whether masks can actually protect us from contracting the virus. 
And then back on the nutrition front, we have Josh who's curious about olive oil and whether that poses health problems. We're gonna find out. So let's open things up right now and dive into the old mailbag. It's Q&A time with Drs. Barnard and Ramon right here on The Exam Room. Dipping our hands into the mailbag, mixing things up, reaching in and pulling out the first question. Dr. Barnard, it comes to us from Rob and he writes, could you please explain how animal fats turn into myocellular fat? Okay. Um, just so the people know what we're talking about, we've shown that diabetes starts as insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is really a situation in which the cells of the body have got fat built up inside. And so they don't respond to insulin and your blood sugar starts rising. And your blood sugar is rising not because you're eating sugar in particular, but because there's fat in the cells. So it's dietary fat. Um, you hear about fat being produced in the body, but this is really dietary fat. The fat you eat goes down your esophagus into your stomach and your intestinal tract. It, it's absorbed and some of it is transferred into cells. And the cells where it really matters with regard to insulin resistance are your muscle cells and your liver cells. That's the bad news. The good news is that a diet that avoids animal products has no animal fat. And if you keep the vegetable oils low, that's uh, nuts and guacamole and vegetable oils themselves, uh, there's not much of any fat, and the uh, intramyocellular lipid starts to dissipate. Dr. Rahman, this next one comes to you. It comes from RG, who's watching right now. It says, hi, I'm a type 2 diabetic. I tried a plant-based diet and had to stop because my fasting morning blood sugar was getting higher every day. Have you seen this happen in some of your patients? Yeah, so uh, really great question, RG. Um, and, you know, Dr. Bernard's explanation was a perfect segue into it. Um, so if you have diabetes or prediabetes and you're trying to lower your blood sugar, a plant-based diet can be really crucial in doing that. But the key is to keep it low fat. Um, so really looking out for those high fat plant-based foods such as nuts and seeds, avocados, avoiding oils, minimizing olives, coconut, these high fat foods at dinner time could lead to higher blood sugar readings in the morning. So instead, enjoy legumes and vegetables, uh, whole grains and fruits um, that will help bring those levels down in the morning. Dr. Bronar, coming to you for this one. I've never heard of this. Uh, this is from Didum. He writes, hi, I'm a food for life instructor. Can you comment on super tasters? I haven't been able to find much on the topic in terms of treatment. Basically, as I understand it, it's overly sensitive taste buds and makes people avoid a lot of vegetables, especially dark greens. Um, there is such a thing. I, I don't know if you remember, uh, George, I believe it was George Bush, the elder, if I'm recalling correctly, said, I don't like broccoli. I'm just not having broccoli around. Um, that is a super taster talking. What it, what, it mean, what it means is there's a genetic trait. You just inherit it. And it means that your taste buds are especially attuned to bitter flavors. And there's a little bit of bitterness in broccoli. Um, and in, in other green vegetables. And so often the people who are super tasters tend to avoid those foods. So what do you do? Broccoli is good for you. What you do is you douse it with something sour, like squirt some lemon juice over the top. The combination of bitter, a little bitterness in the vegetable and the sourness of the lemon juice combined to, to, for some peculiar reason, make it sort of sweet and delightful. Or instead of lemon juice, you could use uh, apple cider vinegar, seasoned rice vinegar, even regular vinegar, 
or the granddaddy of them all, for, for the way to, to seduce your seven-year-old child into thinking that, wow, vegetables are the greatest thing ever, is, is Bragg's. I don't know if you've ever had Bragg aminos. You just, it's right next to the soy sauce, and you just spray it on the food, and your kids are going to think green vegetables are the greatest thing in the world. So those, you can try some of those things. Those liquid aminos are clutch. I love them so much. And uh, Rip Esselstyn and his Engine 2 cookbook has a recipe for cheesy chickpeas. And uh, it's made with nutritional yeast and liquid aminos. It couldn't be any simpler. And it is just fantastic. Dr. Bronner, next question, sticking with you. It's a follow-up to what it was you were talking about earlier in the show. It comes to us from Catherine. She writes, if you have meat in the freezer for the meat eaters in the house, is there a date of when the meat was at higher risk? Basically, at what point was the virus possibly introduced in the slaughterhouse? Really no way of telling. Um, slaughterhouses are not interested in telling you um, <laughs> the, the, the trajectory by which the, the when, when was the animal slaughtered? When was it shipped out? When did you get it? Um, was, was there a virus? All of these things are, are unknown. Um, almost everybody, including the people at the USDA who make the food storage rules, would say, assume that it's infected. You just, you, you just can't assume that meat is ever not infected. And not only with COVID, um, but with things like salmonella and, and tapeworms and everything else. So uh, they, that's why they always say, handle it as if it's infected, cook it thoroughly. But best off, don't bring it in your house. Dr. Rahman, coming to you from Diane, she writes, is mild asthma a COVID-19 comorbidity? Yeah, you know, there are so many Americans with asthma in the U.S., and this is a common concern. So a couple of things. Uh, the American um, Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology has stated that currently we have no evidence indicating that asthmatics are at a higher rate for contracting COVID-19 infection. Having said that, the concern has been raised by the CDC that persons with moderate or severe asthma, if they do contract COVID-19, they may have a more complicated course. Um, now, that's not just true for COVID-19. That's true for influenza and most respiratory viruses. Um, so what does this mean for someone with mild asthma? We don't know. We don't have enough data to say if their risk is any higher. But regardless of whether your asthma is mild or moderate or severe, it's really important to work with your healthcare provider to control your asthma with medication if needed. And also remember diet can have a big impact and people who have asthma who go plant-based notice significant improvements in their asthma and allergy symptoms. So combination of diet and medication can be really helpful here. Dr. Bronner, this next one comes to us from Catherine on Facebook. We've been talking a lot about these recently. Is it just fat cells that have ACE2? Uh, fat cells do have the, the ACE2 um, enzyme, which is, as we've discussed, it's the welcome mat for the virus. The virus has little spikes on it, and they come and they arrive at the surface of the cell, and they will attach to this ACE2 enzyme, and then they are sucked into the cell. Uh, but it's not only on fat cells. It's also in your lung cells. That's how they, they, they get in. Um, and, and other cells of the body as well. The reason we've talked about them uh, being on fat cells is that's something that we can control, which is um, a very handy thing. You can reduce the amount of body fat. You can't reduce the amount of lung you have, hopefully. So, Dr. Barnard, sticking with you, this one comes to us from Art Book Guy on YouTube. He writes, I'm vegan, and I noticed that many frozen vegan substitute meats and other products have a lot of salt. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, some of them do. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it, it's there for a reason because meat eaters who are transitioning to 
uh, a vegan diet expect a salty flavor. They're used to it. And so the food uh, manufacturers want to make sure it's up to their taste standards. So they'll add salt. Um, a good rule of thumb is to, fig- is to think of how much your overall salt intake is over the course of the day. And if over the course of the day, your sodium intake adds up to about 2,000 uh, uh, micrograms, that's two, two grams of salt, somewhere around there, uh, you're going to be in an okay range. Um, a lot of Americans are much higher than that, three, four, five, six, you know, and beyond. Um, uh, that's too high. So, so you can just think about how much you're getting in each. In, you look at the labels. And if, if a food doesn't have a label, like an orange, the amount of sodium in it is, is really minuscule. It's, it, plant foods in general don't have much. It's just the salt that's added. So read the can or read the box. All right. And Dr. Rahman, this one comes to us from Anu on YouTube. She writes, "What? my question is, does a whole food plant-based diet need to be uh, the majority of it being raw? So what is the ratio between raw and cooked food? Um, so I don't know if the majority of it needs to be raw. You know, fruits are generally eaten raw, but people will sometimes make a compote and eat it. But vegetables, you can eat them raw, you can steam them, you can bake them, um, put them in a smoothie. The important thing is to consume them, however that is for you. Uh, same thing with legumes or grains, usually not eaten raw. They would almost always be eaten cooked. So um, I, I wouldn't worry too much about raw versus cooked, but really focus more, more on getting a healthy plate of fruits and vegetables and legumes and grains into every meal and really enjoying them while keeping the fats low. All right, Dr. Barnard, this next one comes to us from Allison. She's a friend of the show. She writes, the Baltimore Sun reported multiple new human clinical trials of promising vaccines, but I don't see a mention of animals. Can we assume that no animal tests were done before commencing these trials? Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for your, your question. Thank you for your support. Um, and I wish we could assume that animal testing wasn't involved, but it almost certainly was. Um, when you read the the, the uh newspaper accounts of these uh, vaccines that are in development, and there are more than 100 of them in development now, um, they very often talk about skipping as certain animal tests. Um, however, the FDA still does require certain animal tests before vaccines can be used. Um, and quite often, uh, they have said that they skipped certain animal tests, when in fact, they, they did do some animal testing before even starting with the first human volunteers. Um, typically, they require rodent tests, and then also what they'll call a non-rodent test. Uh, that means dogs, uh, could be primates, uh, could be pigs, uh, plus the rodent test. And so those those are those end up being done. Um, the reason that they they do these uh, for better or worse is that vaccines are not uncommonly toxic. Back in 1976, the swine flu epidemic led to a swine flu vaccine being produced that caused Guillain-Barré syndrome. That's a uh, serious neurological illness. And uh, some other vaccines also make, make infectious viruses paradoxically even worse. Dr. Fauci has talked about that. So that's the reason they test them. The problem, of course, is that animal tests aren't any guarantee of safety in humans at all. They very often give you the wrong result. And there has been a big push to get rid of these requirements since, um, and, and you'll see this very often in talk shows where, where they, they bring in the virologists and they, they say, uh, that the animal tests are so unreliable, but but they will do the tests to satisfy FDA. Let's hope that that changes. 
So many great questions still rolling in, so go ahead and post yours in the comment box right now. Dr. Ramon, this one is coming to you from Molly. She posted this just a minute ago. Can you talk about weight loss plateaus on a whole food plant-based diet? Yeah, so, uh, you know, anyone who's tried to lose weight, including me, we've experienced this. You're sort of heading down and then you plateau and it can be so disappointing. Um, so a couple of things to do. Um, what I usually do when I work with people and, and their weight loss goals is when we hit a plateau, really talk about um, two things. One, um, how much fat is in your diet? So we want to aim for about 10% of our calories to be from fat. So really watching the fat content is key. And that goes back to those high fat foods like nuts or avocados, nut butters, seeds, um, seed paste like tahini, oils, olives, coconut, and and really being mindful of that um, and seeing how much they're getting. Um, sometimes people are maybe eating a handful of nuts, so I'll tell them to really measure how much they're eating. The other thing um, is making sure we're eating what we need. So it's sensible portion sizes. We're not counting calories. That's not practical. That's not doable. But just eating what we need and and being mindful of that. So not eating when we're not hungry um, and, and really looking out for that and working with both of those. We can usually find that spot where people are eating a healthy diet and then they're starting to um, lose weight again. Dr. Barnard, shifting back over to you, this one from Boo Baker. What are the best foods to eat to avoid endometriosis? I know that's something you wrote about in your latest book. Um, thank you so much for asking that because there, there are so many people, so many women who have developed endometriosis, which is a painful condition in which cells that are in the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, have escaped and they're implanting all around the, the abdomen. Um, and yeah, I, I wrote this new book, Your Body in Balance, all about um, menstrual cramps and endometriosis, but also every other um, common hormonal condition. Um, the issue is, is estrogens. Um, estrogens drive this process. And there are three dietary steps that will calm down estrogens and get it back into to balance. Um, the first thing is to avoid dairy. And that surprises people. Uh, dairy comes from cows who are impregnated. Uh, and they're pregnant for nine months out of every 12. They create estrogen and it gets concentrated in cheese. Uh, secondly, you want to avoid fats in general for reasons that we have never sorted out. Fatty foods cause your body to make more estrogen. And third, make sure you're getting fiber, plant roughage. Plant roughage, beans, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, those will reduce excess estrogen. So um, if you have endometriosis, continue to see your doctor. But um, what I would strongly recommend is for the next two to three cycles, two to three months, no animal products at all. And this is crucial. Keep vegetable oils to a bare minimum, too. You want to keep the total fat low. So vegan, yes, really low fat. See if you don't feel better. All right, Dr. Barnard, sticking with you. Next question comes to us from Anna on Facebook. She's a little bit of a cub reporter here. She writes, the Bronx is well stocked with plant foods. How is it, though? That's the good news. But she wants to know, how is it that one member of a family of four gets the virus while the rest don't get it at all? Yeah, um, there are many mysteries of, of every viral illness, and it's certainly true with COVID-19. Um, we've talked about differences. Uh, I think it was, was it Monday's show? We were talking about uh, men having more of the, the enzyme that welcomes the virus in. And so people have said, why is it that women are getting it less than men? That could be one of the contributors. Um, the underlying health conditions make a difference. Uh, hygiene can make a difference. And sometimes there, are, in fact, probably most of the time, we just can't tell 
why is it that one family member got it and the other didn't? Dr. Rahman, this one comes to us from Mason on Facebook. They write, is there any problem with eating lots of soybeans every day since they're relatively high in fat? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad um, you brought that up because we've been talking about keeping it low fat. And um, soybeans, which are used to make tofu or tempeh, they are a relatively high fat food, about 50% fat, 50% protein. But um, they're not a problem uh, as a compared to say nuts or seeds, because if you've had tofu, it's quite filling. Um, it's really kind of hard to overeat it. And tofu is so full of healthy protein. It's a great source of phytoestrogens, which reduces the risk of breast cancer. It can improve bone density. So I generally don't feel that people end up eating too much tofu just because it's quite filling, quite satiating. And after a while, people just don't want to eat too much of it. Same kind of question. Uh, is eating tofu recommended, Dr. Rahman, because it is processed? Yeah, I it, it is processed. Uh, it's, you know, it's soybeans are used and then used to cook them, ferment them to make tofu. Uh, I don't think that's a problem. Uh, so tofu still retains much of the nutritional value found in soybeans. It's a great way to make cheesy sauces or casseroles or smoothies. So um, great for air frying. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it. And kids often love it. Um, great recipes for them out there. Dr. Broadard, next question comes to us from Margaret. Are you familiar with the PB2 product, peanut butter 2? You know, it's funny. Um, in our research studies, um, everyone is really sorry to hear, oh, it's not only vegan, but it should be low fat. And, and what do I do? Because I love PB&J. Um, and then they go to the store and they get this product, which is defatted uh, peanut butter, and they fall in love with it. Yeah, it works great. She wants to know uh, what. OK, so you think that it is great. She was curious because it does have added sugar. It's a little bit negligible, low fat, no other ingredients. Just, I guess, looking for a thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. It, it's it's a treat food because things are added to it. Um, but what they what they've done is they're 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 trying to keep all of the good in peanut butter and get rid of that big load of fat. All right, Jacqueline on Facebook, uh, Dr. Barnard, sticking with you one more time. My daughter has problems absorbing iron. What are the best foods for people who have this problem? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I do hope that she's seeing her doctor to make sure that her iron status is really understood, uh, because. Uh, it may be that her iron uh, absorption is, is normal. But, but in any case, um, from a culinary standpoint, the foods that really are your iron champions are green leafy vegetables. Uh, beans are also uh, have plenty of iron, but green leafy vegetables have iron in a form that is more absorbable when your body needs more and less absorbable when your body already has too much. And that's a great thing because you can get iron overloaded in the 1950s, people would say, eat liver, eat steak for iron. And then we discovered that iron overload leads to Alzheimer's disease and also heart disease. So green leafy vegetables, number one, beans, number two. All right. And Dr. Rahman, this one comes to us from Janelle on YouTube. How much B12 should we be taking on a vegan diet? Yeah, so really important. B12 is an essential vitamin that we all need. We can't produce it. We have to get it in our diet. Um, so if you're following a plant-based diet, it's really important to take a supplement. We need very little, just 2.6 micrograms a day. But 
a B12 supplement on the market is rarely sold in such a low dose. The lowest I've seen is 100 micrograms, um, and they go up to, you know, a few thousand micrograms. Um, so taking a supplement a few times a week should give you all the B12 you need. And toxicity is very uncommon because it's water-soluble, and we end up excreting um, through our kidneys whatever we don't need. All right, time for just a couple of more questions. So go ahead and keep posting yours in the comments section. This next one comes to us from Andrea on YouTube. Dr. Barnard, I'm going to toss this one your way. She writes, my HDL cholesterol is 38 and my doctor said it's too low. Why? What should I eat? My LDL is 94. My total is 149. First of all, you could sell that total cholesterol on eBay. People would bid on that. That's a great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I mean is that's a great total cholesterol. Um, your LDL, you, you want your LDL under 100 and you're, you're, you're nicely under 100. Um, HDL, are thinking about HDL, the, the world's thinking about HDL has changed. Um, HDL is good cholesterol. And uh, studies did seem to suggest that people who had high levels of HDL had some protection. However, what changed was that uh, researchers started to develop either diets or, or drugs that would drive HDL up. And it turned out that get, having a high HDL didn't protect you in, in that sense. So everyone kind of went back through the studies, and what they decided was that there are some, uh, our best guess is that people who happened to have a high HDL, the protection was probably a confounder. Um, based on, on, on other parts of the research study that were being in, inadequately um, uh, controlled. Be that as it may, HDL levels sometimes will drop when people are on a healthy vegan diet. Not always, but they, they sometimes drop. And the theory is that its job is to get rid of cholesterol. It carries cholesterol away like a dump truck. And if you have very little cholesterol, as you do with, it, with an LDL, of, if you said 94, that's great. Um, then you just your body just doesn't need so much HDL. So I would not worry about that low HDL. Now, it's between you and your doctor, but uh, the research nowadays is saying not such a big deal. All right, in the home stretch here, Dr. Rahman, coming back to you. This is an interesting one. I think that uh, a lot of people are talking about this one recently. Uh, it has been stressed over and over in the news that wearing a mask isn't for protecting yourself, but for protecting others from your germs. Isn't it also, to some measure, protective for oneself, though? Please explain the science behind this. Yeah, so this I think this is causing a lot of confusion. Um, there are three types of masks out there. There's the N95 respirator, which is uh, a mask used for medical professionals. It's fitted and it protects about 95% of transmission or, or uh, blocks the particles. Um, then there's a surgical mask, uh, which is used in the healthcare setting, and then a simple cloth mask, which is what the CDC is recommending for the general public. And the question is, how does it protect us? The thought has been that wearing the mask um, is really to protect us from people who are asymptomatic, who may not have any symptoms. And so when they're speaking um, to us or near us, the mask is covering up their secretion. So even though they're asymptomatic, they may be shedding the virus. And so we're not exposed to it. Um, However, it's, it's not completely clear how effective the simple cloth masks are or even the surgical masks. And there was actually a study published from South Korea last month where they t 
took four patients with COVID-19 in a hospital ward and they had them wear a surgical mask and a cloth mask and then they had them cough and neither mask prevented the virus um, from disseminating. Now, these were people who were symptomatic and coughing. The thought right now is the cloth mask is really for people who don't have symptoms. They're not actively coughing. It's just to prevent their secretions from getting out. We don't know. But my take on it is it's a low-cost, low-risk intervention, so why not do it? And um, really important to couple it with meticulous hand-washing and social distancing um, because those are paramount along with wearing a mask. All right. Really in the home stretch here, Edith on Facebook, Dr. Barnard writes, does microwaving kill the virus? A lot of people also wondering about this one. Um, what likely will kill the virus is the temperature that can be achieved by the microwave. And uh, in contrast to what I was talking about earlier, where refrigeration will will definitely extend the life of the virus and, and freezing will extend it for years, um, heat is exactly the opposite. So no matter how you heat, it's going to kill the virus, um, assuming that, that it's more than just a, a second or two. Yeah, you, you, um, you need to, to heat it for us. In the same way as when something is cooked enough to be eaten, the virus is going to be dead. And, and that would be true in the microwave, too. And Dr. Rahman, final question comes to you. This is from Josh on Facebook. Writes a bunch of things, but let's pick this part out. Can extra virgin olive oil, just a few teaspoons a week, be part of a healthy diet? Does cooking it in the oven cause health problems? Yeah. Um, you know, what we know about all oils is they impair endothelial function. So it's best to avoid them. The harm is probably the least with extra virgin olive oil, but there is still some impairment of endothelial function. So what I tell people is use as little as you can, um, really minimize it. And using it in the oven, it really depends on the temperature you're using, uh, because what we don't want is to hit the smoke point of the oil. That's when the oil smokes, and that is not good for us. Um, so a low temperature is probably okay. But again, the key here is to just really minimize that amount of oil. And Dr. Barnard, we still, there's this pervasive theory that oils are healthy for us, whether it's olive oil or coconut oil. We hear and we see these things online. Where do these ideas come from? Well, they are healthier um, than, 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 say, butter or lard or something like that. And so there's been a push for a long time, and understandably so, to say instead of cooking with animal fats, uh, switch to a vegetable oil because you're going to greatly reduce the saturated fat content. Uh, bacon grease and butter have the saturated fat that drives uh, cholesterol levels up, and it also drives Alzheimer's risk up. So, so, it's, so oils are better than, than uh, animal products, generally speaking. But they still have calories, even though they have less bad fat. And although they have less bad fat, they don't have zero bad fat. So when you learn to cook without the added oils, you get the best of all worlds. Um, and let me say a special word of condemnation for coconut oil and palm oil. Uh, a lot of manufacturers are using them now because they have that buttery mouthfeel. But like butter, they raise your cholesterol. So uh, coconut oil and palm oil uh, should be on the, on the negative list as well. If we didn't get to your question today, no worries, my friend. Plenty of other opportunities will present themselves guaranteed. Every day on The Exam Room Live, we answer at least one question on the show. And then once a week, we do these 
big long Q&As like we just had. So keep on posting them. Send them to us on social media, on Twitter, at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and at PCRM. If you're more of an Instagram kind of person, no problem. We got you covered there too. At Chuck Carroll, WLC, and then a little bit different for the Physicians Committee, which is spelled out at Physicians Committee. So send us your questions there. Just make sure that you use the hashtag exam room podcast. And while you're clicking around, please also head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever podcasts are available, and hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating. Not only then, my friend, will you begin to receive each new episode automatically, but you'll also be helping to get this information to someone who really needs it the most. Because the more subscriptions and good reviews that we receive, the higher we climb in podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people to find us. And the easier it becomes for people to find us, the easier it becomes for them to learn all of this potentially life-saving information. So thank you for doing your part to help make the world a healthier place. And don't forget, you can catch The Exam Room live once again every weekday, Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook and YouTube pages. Matter of fact, coming up on Thursday's edition, why that's the very day that this show that you're listening to is being released, Dr. Jim Loomis from the movie The Game Changers will be joining us. He's also a former NFL and Major League Baseball team physician, so going to be lots to discuss with the sports world slowly starting to reopen. And maybe you're wondering about the athlete in you or the the athlete in your life. Maybe there's some plant-based nutrition athlete-related questions that are on your mind. No problem. Go ahead and send them in and Dr. Loomis will give you an answer right there on the show. And you heard Lee talk about his beet hummus recipe. My goal on that particular episode is going to be to pry that out of him. The beet hummus recipe needs to happen. So tune in to the exam room live and we'll see if we can't get that for you. But for right now, that's going to wrap things up. My thanks again to the Fiber Queen, Lee Crosby, and Dr. Vanito Ramon, and of course, Dr. Neil Barnard. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and Keep it plant-based.